We're going to be in a few different passages. You can put your finger in Luke 22, the passage that Olivia just read. Wasn't that amazing? Um, Holding back tears as we speak. Okay. Uh, Front doors and kitchen tables. These are special uh, things in our homes, not so much because of what they're made of, but because of what happens there. You know, the front door is where people are recognized, family members are recognized and welcomed into the home. And the kitchen table, of course, is where family gathers to eat meal after meal and be uh, really together eating. And the church family is very much like that. Baptism is very much like the front door where family is recognized and welcomed into the church family as Pastor Ted was preaching through various passages on baptism. And communion, or the Lord's Supper, is very much like the kitchen table where family comes together and eats a meal that really displays their unity as a family. And this is what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be looking at the church's kitchen table. We're going to be going into the kitchen. We're going to be looking at the dining room table. We're going to be looking at what does it look like for the family to come together and eat this meal that Jesus gave his church called the Lord's Supper. There are going to be a few things that we're going to look at. This is exactly what we have been always going to in Acts chapter 2. This is a passage that keeps coming up. Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. And so Luke highlights in chapter 2, verse 41 and 42, this thing that the early church was devoted to. You remember that word that Pastor Ted used and highlighted last week when he was talking about membership. There were some things when people came to Christ and were baptized and were added to the church, they were devoted to some things. The apostolic teaching and preaching, which we have in the word of God, to the prayers, to the fellowship, and the breaking of bread. That's another term that we'll look at that's used for the Lord's Supper. And so if they were devoted to this, it must have been a high priority you're not devoted to something unless it is of great importance, unless it's a high priority, unless you are deeply committed and passionate about doing it. And this was true of the early church. And if it was true for them, it should be true of us. And so we want to look at why. What was so significant about this meal? What was it all about? So there's going to be five things that we look at today, five things that are going to help us understand more about what is the Lord's Supper. And the first thing that we see is that we come to a better idea of what the Lord's Supper is. We know what the Lord's Supper is by its names, by its names. It has all sorts of names, just like you might have names. You have, you know, your official name and nicknames and then the names that your sibling calls you. And well, the Lord's Supper has lots of different names and we learn about the Lord's Supper by its names. Like communion, communion. It's from the Latin word communio or the Greek word koinonia. Both of them are getting at the idea of sharing, participating in something together. This is where we come together and share something, participate in something that will display that we're one. It will display our unity together. Another name is the Eucharist. Eucharist, that's kind of a a weird name for the term, but it's coming from another word, a Greek word called eucharistia, which just means thanksgiving. And when Jesus 
broke bread in Luke 22, 19, in the Last Supper, he gave thanks. And so we just borrow that term, Thanksgiving, or the Eucharist. Again, this is getting at the idea of of breaking of bread. That's another term that is used in Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 10, and 11. It's used all throughout, this idea of breaking bread. And the idea is that the person who was hosting the meal, whether it was Jesus at the Last Supper or Paul in Acts 20 or in 1 Corinthians 11, he was giving instructions to the church in Corinth. They're breaking bread, and so the host would break bread and distribute the food to all those participating in the meal. And it was a display of unity. We're all eating the same meal. Of course, bread makes us think of the table, and this is another term for the Lord's Supper. It's called the Lord's Table. Paul uses this term in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21, and Jesus does in Luke 22, verse 30. The idea here is that we're, eat, we're, eating, we're breaking bread at a table, and God as Father has invited us as his children to his table. There's a place setting for you, and you're here with all your brothers and sisters at the family meal. And that meal, again, gets to the most common term for communion or the Lord's Supper or the Lord's table or the breaking of bread is the Lord's Supper. It's actually the word dinner or supper. It's a, it's a meal. And it was to be celebrated by the family. It's bringing all those pieces together. This idea that Jesus is hosting the meal at his father's table and he has brought all the other children together and they're celebrating what the meal is supposed to be pointing to. And that's what we're going to look at next. We, we learned a lot from the names and that's true, but we're going to miss some of the meaning unless we understand the second thing. And that is we, we learn a lot about the Lord's Supper by its symbolism, by its symbolism. This is really important for us to understand. Just the same way in which the baptism, the ordinance of baptism, points symbolically to spiritual realities, so we see the same thing in the Lord's Supper. We see the practicing of the Lord's Supper is pointing to, as symbols, pointing to both spiritual realities and physical realities. And so that's where it's a little bit more complex than the symbolism seen in baptism, but it's very understandable, and so we'll just kind of keep our eyes focused in on what the symbols are pointing to. So on this diagram here, you'll notice that the physical bread is symbolic of a couple of things, of the physical body of Jesus that really carried our sins on the cross, and the spiritual body of Jesus that is all of us who have been united to Jesus Christ by faith. So the physical bread's pointing to those two realities. Similarly, physical wine, the symbol of physical wine is pointing to the physical blood of Jesus Christ that was spilt on the cross. And it's pointing to the spiritual payment of the forgiveness of sins that the blood bought. It's pointing to both of those realities. Now, this one we sometimes forget, but the actual eating and drinking of these elements of bread and wine are also symbolic of the spiritual fact that of ongoing faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
So what we're going to do is just go through each of these in a little bit more detail so we get a clear understanding of the symbolism found in the Lord's Supper. So first we see bread. Bread represents the body of Jesus Christ. And it represents his physical body that actually carried our sins on the cross as a Passover lamb and sacrificial offering. You'll remember Isaiah 53, that classic chapter in the Old Testament that looks forward to all the things that the coming Messiah will do to save his people. And in verse 6 of that chapter, it says, The Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. In 1 Peter 2, it says that he himself bore our sins. That word means to carry, to carry the burden on his body of our sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. That is the cross. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So the physical body of Jesus really hung from a cross, really carried our sins as a Passover lamb. But as Pastor Ted talked about last week when he was describing membership and the spiritual uh, membership that we have in the body of Christ, our spiritual unity in Christ, this is also what's being symbolized in the bread. We read this last week in 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. A couple of chapters earlier, Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper, and he brings these ideas together. He says, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That word participation is koinonia, that fellowship, or communio in Latin. It's bringing that idea. Isn't this a sharing? Isn't this a mutual participation in this unity that we have in Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So bread is symbolizing the body of Jesus, his physical body that carried our sins and his spiritual body of which all believers who are trusting in Christ are made up of, are united in. Now we're looking at the second symbol, wine, or as Jesus said in Luke twenty-two eighteen, 18, the fruit of the vine, which is why we have juice, not wine, at hope, which fits into the description that Jesus gives here in Luke 22, the fruit of the vine. But this grape juice or the, the wine is symbolic of Jesus' blood, his physical blood on the cross, and his death. Again, when you crush grapes, the crimson juice flows and it's very descriptive of what happened to Jesus on the cross. When he was crushed on the cross, his crimson blood flowed. Again, we go back to Isaiah 53, verse 10. It says, and yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus was crushed on the cross for us. John 19 brings us out where in verse 33 and 34 it says, but when they came to him, that is when the soldiers came to Jesus when he was hanging on the cross, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. 
because he was the Passover lamb. You never break the bones of a Passover lamb. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came blood and water. And so the wine represents the literal, physical blood that Jesus spilled out on the cross. But it also represents the the spiritual payment of the forgiveness of sins that that blood purchased. It's highlighting the forgiveness of sins, the result, the, the good gift that the blood bought. And so we also see this in Ephesians Chapter 1, verse 7, it says, In him we, that is, in Jesus, we as believers have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Romans 3, 24 and 25 go on to say how Paul says, We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. This word propitiation means to satisfy God's justice. Jesus was put forward to satisfy God's justice by his blood, his death. And this is to be received by faith. Jesus dies on the cross. It satisfies God's holy justice that was pointed at our sin and the outstanding debt or consequence of that sin, which is death, physical and eternal death. And Jesus pays for our tab. He picks it up and clears it. In the Bible, uh, blood and death are almost synonymous because it brings up these ideas of the Old Testament sacrificial system where as an animal, an, an offering was offered, it would, it would be sacrificed and blood would flow, but it would all flow out so that there would be no more lifeblood left in the animal. So it's, it's the same as saying it died. And this is exactly this, the description that's being used of Jesus. Every time it's talking about the blood of Christ, it's as if it's saying the blood and death of Christ because that's exactly what happened on the cross to Jesus. All of his lifeblood poured out. He died on the cross. And in that death, bought for his people the forgiveness of sins. And so that's exactly what this symbol is pointing towards, whether it's wine or juice, this idea of this crimson juice is pointing forward to the literal blood of Jesus, but also what he bought with it, our forgiveness, our redemption. Now, the Lord's table, we don't kind of look at it like a museum. We actually eat it. We drink it. We do something with it. And that's important. That's a part of the symbolism as well. When we come to the table, we are not just uh, taking it and eating it and drinking it in an impersonal way. It's meant to point us, to move us to a reality of our ongoing faith. It's a picture of our ongoing faith in Jesus and all that he did that we just described here. That I'm still believing this week in the gospel. I still believe in Christ and all that he did on my behalf. That's what I'm doing as I'm eating and drinking it. I'm picturing, I'm displaying, I'm proclaiming to all those around me. I'm still trusting in 
the gospel. And it's a picture. It's symbolic. It's metaphorical eating and drinking of the reality of believing and trusting. We know this because Jesus talked this way. He explained this in John chapter 6 in verses 54 and 55, and then a little bit later in 63, 64. He says some remarkable words. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on that last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. It is the spirit who gives life and the flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus is highlighting the fact that belief here is what's important. Belief in his words are important because if you believe his, him and his words, then you receive salvation. You receive eternal life. And what were those words? <laughs> Well, he says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now we have to look at the context. This is John 6. This is during the Passover. He's highlighting the fact that I'm the Passover lamb. In, in Jewish tradition, the Passover, they would take a lamb and they would eat that lamb and they would drink wine. It was a whole celebration of what's come to know as the Easter cedar or the Passover cedar. And you have these different steps. And this Passover lamb was so symbolic of pointing back to the exile when God brought Israel up out of Egypt. And Jesus is saying in John 6, I'm the Passover lamb. You have to eat me. You got to drink me. But notice what he's saying. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. These are the same words that he uses. I am the true vine. I am the true shepherd. When he's talking about the vine, it's not because Jesus actually becomes a vine. It's, it's symbolic. It's metaphorical of you got to get grafted into him. you got to be drinking the sap run through that vine if you're going to live and have eternal life. And Jesus is describing here the symbolism, this metaphorical speech that's pointing to, if you believe what I'm saying, that's like eating and drinking me like the Passover lamb. So Jesus is describing this symbolically. And this is very important because the role of symbolism has not been understood clearly over the last 2,000 years in church history. There's been different groups that have under, understood it differently in the nature of the Lord's Supper. And that leads us to the third thing that we need to know about the Lord's Supper. We need to understand its nature. We need to know its nature. Now, this what it, what it means, what we mean by nature is that, like, what happens to the Lord's Supper? What's going on in the Lord's Supper when we partake of it, when we do it. Well, in the Roman Catholic tradition, they believe something called transubstantiation. That's just a big fancy word for substances are transformed. Transubstantiation. They, they believe that the bread and the wine get changed. They get transformed into the literal, physical body of Jesus. It still looks like bread and wine, but it's really become, they believe, 
the blood and body of Jesus. And so they eat it, literally, and ingest it. And that's a part of their system of understanding works righteousness and earning salvation. And it's a part of building up your credit with God by eating, literally eating Jesus. There's something similar, though a little different, in Lutheranism. It's called consubstantiation. Another word, it's big and fancy. It just means the substances are co-joined with Christ. So they believe the bread and the wine stay the same. They're still bread and wine. But Jesus, his literal physical body, is joined with the elements. They, it surrounds it and coats it and infuses it. And so the person is still eating and ingesting the literal physical body of Jesus. Now, we know from Jesus' own words that these are two wrong interpretations of the Lord's Supper because they're, taking Jesus, they're misinterpreting Jesus' words as being literal rather than in symbolic. We know this again for the fact that in Luke 22, when Jesus is actually saying these words, when he's saying at the Last Supper in the words of institution, this is my body, this is my blood, he's standing there with bread and wine in his hand. And the disciples clearly understand he cannot be bread and the wine and the man all at the same time physically. He's speaking symbolically here. And so we need to understand these words the way Jesus intended them to be understood. And of course, we've already looked at John 6, where Jesus explains that it is understood symbolically. And so these two views of transubstantiation and consubstantiation are wrong views, biblically. Instead, a more accurate biblical view is something called, in seeing the Lord's Supper, as we'll take here, a meal of remembrance, a meal of remembrance. Just as Jesus said at the Last Supper, do this in remembrance of me. This meal of remembrance, this memorial meal where we're commemorating, what are we remembering? We're remembering all that Jesus is, all that he has done for us in the gospel. Now, this remembrance isn't some impersonal Oh, yeah, I remember that. You know, almost like automatic, without thinking, just checking the box, just doing it, going through the motions, like you might through a drive-through, maybe at Timmy's on your way to work and always just ordering coffee and donut. And you're just not even thinking about it. That's not what's being called to mind here at all. This meal of remembrance is a spiritual remembrance where we are remembering Christ and spiritually communing, interacting with Christ because he is spiritually present in the meal. He's spiritually present because by his spirit, he dwells in us by the Holy Spirit, and he's present with us when we gather together as a family, as a brothers and sisters in Christ. He is spiritually present with us. There's several passages that Paul refers to again and again about how when we gather together, Christ is present with us. He's physically in heaven. But because of our faith in Christ, our union with Christ, he is spiritually present with us. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, 
There's something powerful going on. We are communing with Christ. We are worshiping Christ. We are engaging with Jesus, thanking him, praising him, remembering all that he is and all that he has done on our behalf. And in so doing, we are actually growing in our faith. Every time you recall the gospel and your heart is warm to the truths of the gospel and you delight in Christ and you delight in those truths, you are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, not because you're eating bread and wine, but because you're seeing Jesus spiritually. You're seeing him through eyes of faith. And so Jesus is present at our partaking of the Lord's Supper, but he's present spiritually, not physically. Now, something we keep mentioning is that we have this meal together, together. Communion is not a one-on-one date with Jesus, just you and him. Yes, you are a part of that, but you're part of a meal together. We take it together. We remember together. And so this is the fourth thing that we need to understand about the Lord's Supper if we are to understand it rightly, and that is that we need to know, we need to know about its connections. We need to know about its connections. There is a three-way connection going on when we partake of the Lord's Supper, when we have the Lord's Supper. I, as a believer, as I'm As I'm taking the bread and the juice, I am remembering all that they point to in the gospel, and I am communing with Christ. While at the same time, all of you, as brothers and sisters in Christ, you're also remembering Jesus and all that he did, and you're communing with Christ. And because we are one in Christ, because we are members of the same body, then we are actually communing with each other through our communion with Christ. And so there's a three-way connection going on as I am resting and believing and delighting and worshiping in Christ through communion, I'm also communing with my brothers and sisters and likewise. And so there's a three-way connection going on here in communion. That's why we call it communion. There's a sharing going on. There's a mutual participation going on here. There's a sweet fellowship going on here between us and Jesus and each other. This is not something we're just doing together. This is picturing something we are together. This is describing and displaying and picturing a reality that we are actually one in Christ. This is why Jesus put such a big emphasis on gospel consistency in the family among brothers and sisters in Christ. He wants to make sure that we're living consistently with each other as we claim to be. Jesus says, sorry, in John, 1 John chapter 4, 19 to 20, John highlights this. He says, we love because he first loved us. All of our loving is because it's being fueled from his love that he has shown us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Being consistent is a big deal 
to God. If we say that we love God, but we don't love our brother, we're being inconsistent. If we say we love God, we must love our brother and sister in the family. If we say that we've received the vertical love of God, it must flow out horizontally. If it doesn't, it means that there's an inconsistency there. There's an incongruency there. There's a gap. It means that I'm not living consistent with the gospel I am proclaiming in the Lord's Supper as I take it. It means that there's an inconsistency there in my belief, in my proclamation. I'm still trusting in Christ as I partake of the Lord's Supper if I'm not right with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul warns of this very reality. He warns the church in Corinth that this isn't just something flippant you do. It's beautiful. It's packed with meaning and power intentionally by Jesus. And so we approach, because he's hosting the meal, Jesus is present spiritually. You don't take it flippantly. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, we'll look at that in a second, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Jesus takes this meal very seriously. If we partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, in a way that is inconsistent or contrary or hypocritical to Jesus and his character or the gospel, such as if we refuse to repent of or extend forgiveness toward sins like lying or stealing or holding a grudge or partiality or slander or gossiping or the list goes on and on. If, if I am refusing to repent of those things, if I'm doing them, or if I'm refusing to extend forgiveness if those have been done to me, then I'm living inconsistently. And Jesus lovingly disciplines God's children back into being consistent with the gospel. If we get off track, as a good shepherd, he's always bringing the sheep back on track in the gospel. Now, this doesn't mean that we lose our salvation when, when Jesus disciplines us. That's not what's being said at all. What's being said is that God lovingly brings us back in accord with the gospel. If we are sinning as God's children, we're still God's children, but if we are sinning and refusing to repent, then not, on, not only is our sin affecting and hurting ourselves, but we are dishonoring the name of Jesus and we are hurting the body of Christ and Jesus will not have it. The gospel is too important. Your soul is too important. His name is too important. And so lovingly, he brings us back again and again into conformity with the gospel. That's actually one of the designs of the Lord's Supper. It forces us not just to go on our way in life 
Oh, yes, 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 I'm a Christian. Oh, yes, yes, I go to church and not live consistently with the gospel. It's so easy to just kind of get off track and get busy with things and forget when again and again, when I'm brought together with the family and together we are remembering the gospel in the, in the bread and in the cup, we are forced to really stop and think, am I right? Not just with Jesus, but with each other. Is there a conversation I need to have? Is the Spirit prompting me to pause and, and go initiate the dialogue? Do I need to go and repent? Do I need to confess or admit something? Do I need to get something right in the family? You've all experienced those awkward moments, right? On, at family get-togethers, you're, you know there's just something there with another family member, like a biologically family member, and it's, there's just tension there. And the meal just doesn't go right. There's an awkwardness. You end up sitting in another room, and they're eating in another room, and you're, you spend the whole time avoiding each other. And that, that's just not, that's, that's not what Jesus says can happen in the church family. We need to be taking steps to live out the gospel. And he disciplines, in some cases, severely. You'll notice in the text it said, some of you have even gotten ill. Some of you have died. Now, it's not saying that everyone who gets sick and dies is because of unrepentant sin. The Bible says there's all sorts of reasons why people get sick and people pass away. He's saying, but one of the reasons is that if someone's living an ongoing lifestyle of unrepentant sin and refusing, they've hardened their heart and they refuse to forgive someone, then one of the ways in extreme cases that Jesus uses to lovingly discipline his children is illness. That is sobering. When you read Revelation 1 and 2 and 3, we see Jesus in a way that he, was, he is high and lifted up and saying very intense things to his church, his brothers and sisters in Christ as our older brother and savior. And this is one of them. And it's all in love, as intense as it is. And so this is why it's so serious when we come to the table that we discern the body. That doesn't mean you're discerning your own physique. You're discerning the family body, all of us together. Am I living consistently with one another. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to be perfect to take the Lord's Supper. If that were the case, then Jesus would get stood up every time. He would be the only one at the table because he alone is perfect. So what does it mean to live consistently with the gospel? It means that you're believing the gospel today. You're believing that he, is, he has died for your sins, that he is your savior. And you're doing that messy work of repenting of sin when the Spirit exposes it in your life and you're repenting of that. You're struggling to work your way forward in holiness, believing the gospel, not as a works righteousness, but trusting in, in the grace of God. And sometimes it feels like three steps forward and two steps back, but you're trusting in the gospel. You're trying to make amends. You're reaching out to those who have offended you. You're forgiving them. You're seeking forgiveness where it's needed. It's messy. It's supposed to be because we're on this side of glory. And it's messy, but it's progressive. It's progressive. And this is, if this is true of you, 
You are welcome to the Lord's table. You are welcome to partake of the Lord's meal because you are believing the gospel. And in every way, insofar as you're able, you're seeking to live it out. Now, this is highlighting this inescapable three-way connection that we have in the gospel, in Christ, which is displayed in the Lord's Supper. There's one last thing here that I think we need to understand about the supper. We need to understand its future. Its future. If we're going to get a whole picture of what the Bible is saying about the Lord's Supper, we need to get this right. This meal points beyond itself. It doesn't just point backward to what Jesus did on the cross in fulfilling something even further back to the Passover. It's pointing also forward to a greater meal, a greater meal both in significance and in size. It's pointing to the time when Jesus returns for his church, for us, the bride of Christ, and we are invited into the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19 speaks of this, verses 6 and 7. John says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the, of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. This supper is pointing to this eternal feast and fellowship with Jesus and with all the believers in history, all together. This will be a meal like no other meal, a meal that never ends, a party that goes on and on, not into the night, but from everlasting day to everlasting day. The sun never sets on this feast. The food never runs out. The drink never runs dry. But all that compels in comparison to the fact that Jesus will be present, not just spiritually, but physically present with his church, his bride, and all of his resurrected glory and majesty seated at the right hand of the Father. And then he will rise and stand and welcome his bride to the marriage supper of the Lamb and say, feast, come, come, spend eternity with me and delight yourself in me and all that I have prepared for you as he sings the gospel over his bride, as it says in Zephaniah 3.17. At this festival, at this feast, he will sing the gospel over his bride forever, for all eternity. Even now, we hear the gospel being sung in the bread and the wine, don't we? Do you hear the gospel being sung when you eat the bread and the juice? Do you hear the gospel being sung as you realize the family members around you and their testimonies of God's grace and their lives being saved by his grace? Do you hear the gospel being sung as your heart is anticipating and stirred up to worship, knowing that he's coming, that we're one day closer to his return? And then when he does come, this feast will be wrapped up into that greater feast. And in so doing, this is actually an act 
of worship. We are worshiping our way to heaven. And we're actually eating our way to glory in one way. Jesus says, Paul says in the Lord's Supper, that we proclaim his death until he comes. And when he comes, we will be with him forever, feasting with him and on him spiritually forever and ever and ever and ever together. Amen. This is why we need to know about the Lord's Supper. We need to understand its, its names, its symbolism, its nature. We need to understand the connectedness that's going on here and the future of this meal and what it's pointing to. We need to know these things if we are to rightly prepare our hearts for it and to participate in it. Now, for some of you, this might be totally new. You haven't heard of Jesus before. You have no idea what is going on with bread and wine. That's great. We're so glad you are here. We want to encourage you to, before participating in this, to first talk to someone here today. Uh, one of the ushers, they have these gray shirts on, Hope Church. We would love to talk with you or the person who brought you and describe and explain to you more about who Jesus is and what these symbols, bread and and Jews are pointing to in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make sure that if you participate in this in the future, that you do so understanding what it means and that it's true of you. Now, some of you, though, uh, you are believers. And maybe you're a new believer. Maybe you've been a believer for a long time, but you haven't been baptized yet. And you're kind of wondering, how does a sermon on the Lord's Supper apply to me? Well, I would encourage you to do what believers have been doing for the last 2,000 years since the very beginning of the church, as we read in Acts chapter 2, and that is to be first baptized as a believer before participating in the Lord's Supper. We ask you that you do this, very similar if we're going back to that initial analogy, we don't want you to hop through the window to get to the kitchen table, but rather go through the front door as God designed it before coming to the table. If you look at actually all throughout Scripture, there, there's no uh, evidence whatsoever of a believer who's unbaptized who participates in the Lord's Supper. Everyone who participates in the Lord's Supper is a baptized believer. And so that's something that we encourage you to do. And following that biblical pattern, which we've been seeing all through the Scriptures, particularly highlighted in Acts 2, where there's faith and baptism, and then as a family participating in the Lord's Supper. And so if that's something that you're wanting and needing to do and taking that step of baptism, then we encourage you. There's already a group of people lined up. It's been kind of growing through this COVID season of people wanting to get baptized. And we're looking forward to beginning to have baptism services in the very near future. And so if that is you, if you want to join that group, please uh, don't leave today without telling someone. Please uh, let us know, talk to me, jot it down in the connection card that you would like to be baptized as a believer. If you are a baptized believer and you, and you are walking in the gospel, then this meal is for you today. I am very excited about this. We have gone seven months without the Lord's Supper. That is, that's a long time. And we have done so intentionally because of the inherent built-in hardwired symbolism in this meal. We, we have to take it. When we take it, we have to be able to take it together when we've gathered. And so this is why we have delayed till this day. And so 
let us do what Jesus calls us to do as we approach the Lord's Supper and as we prepare our hearts. One, one is that we want to discern the body. Have I, am I living consistently insofar as I am able with my brothers and sisters in Christ in doing the gospel, in doing the one another's of Scripture, believing the gospel and extending it where it needs to be extended, confessing the gospel and my sin where it needs to be and getting right if I have sinned against another. And so if the Spirit is prompting you, I, I need to get something right, there's a conversation that needs to happen first, then, then I, I encourage you, do not take a cup, but instead pray and ask the Lord for an opportunity to have a conversation after this service. This is also why sometimes we try to even preemptively send out an email the week before we have communion well, we used to before COVID, every month, and that's probably something we'll continue to do. But giving people an opportunity to prepare their hearts, to do a bit of an inventory before they come. Is there someone I need to get uh, meet up with or talk to ahead of time? And so if there is, we just encourage you, get right with that person first. As Jesus actually says, in uh, Matthew 5 to do, to leave your offering at the altar and first be reconciled to your brother. But if, if you're walking in the gospel in a messy, consistent way, then we want to commune with Christ and each other this morning. We want to remember what the bread and the wine are pointing to, to Jesus. We want to remember all that he is. We want to remember all that he has done. We want to remember what this is pointing forward to and the eternal feast that we will have with Christ and with one another together forever. So let us commune with the Lord this morning. Let us do what he said to do in Luke 22, to do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, O oh God, that being human, being physical and spiritual with taste buds and an ability to smell and ability to see, you have given us tangible, tasteable, touchable symbols that point to the spiritual realities of our union with Jesus and with one another and the forgiveness that you have purchased for us on the cross. We bless you, O oh God. You know exactly what we need. We need this meal. We need to be reminded of the gospel again and again, not just intellectually, mentally, but we need to taste it. We need to see it. We need to smell it again and again. God, thank you. You've given your family, your church, exactly what it needs to go another day and another week and another month and another year walking in faith, continuing to believe the gospel until you come. We bless you and thank you for this in Jesus' name, amen.